0: Well, uh, it's great to be back with you. I was uh, away last week uh, doing a little bit of a time in the US, returning some favors. You may remember we had Daniel Grothy and Glenn Packham who came and spoke brilliantly. So uh, I was speaking to their churches in in return, sort of thing. And um, we also had a meeting of some of our global boiler room leaders uh, way up in the Rockies with uh, John Peterson. sort of facilitating that. Those of you know John, it was a wonderful time. But I was sad to miss the big summer Sunday, uh, which looked absolutely awesome. I was looking at the pictures on Facebook. You have no idea how British you all look with your baking and your bunting and uh, all the rest of it. So uh, it's great to be back. So this is the penultimate talk in our One Thing series, exploring uh, some of the priorities of life, looking at these five One Thing statements that are in the the Bible. Uh, Jesus says to Mary of Bethany, one thing is needed, sit at my feet, learn from me. Um, And uh, King David says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then Jesus says to the rich young ruler, one thing you are lacking, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Your priorities are wacko. You you need to resolve the worship of money. Uh, next week, we're going to look at uh, the Apostle Paul's priority when he says, One thing I do, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And we don't often talk about the prize, the reward of following Jesus. Since the Reformation, we've been a bit hung up about any notion of prize or rewards, but it's biblical. So we're going to look at that next week. But today, we're going to look at the priority of personal experience. Uh, because, as we shall see in the Bible reading, uh, we are called to experience and encounter and testify uh, to uh, what God has done in our lives. And so, Sammy's going to come and read. This is John chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 to 38. Quite a long reading, so if you want to follow along on your phones or in your Bibles, John 9, chapter... uh, John chapter 9, verses 1 to
1: 38. Okay. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in this world, I am the light of the world." After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. "'Go,' he told him, "'wash in the pool of Siloam.' This word means scent.' So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, "'Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg?' Some claimed that he was. Others said, "'No, he only looks like him.' But he himself insisted, "'I am the man.' How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees and the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the, Mar- the Pharisees said, This man's not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man, What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He's a prophet. They still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. "'Is this your son?' they asked. "'Is this the one you say was born blind? "'How is it that now he can see?' "'We know he's our son,' the parents answered, "'and we know he was born blind. "'But how he can see or how he opened his eyes, we don't know. "'Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself.' His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, "What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes?" He answered, "I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you not want to hear it again? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to? Because his di- do you want to become his disciples too?" Then they hurled insults at him and said, "You are this ma- this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses." We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to a sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him.
0: Amen. is such a brilliant story, isn't it? It just, it's so full of humor, uh, uh, and the, the kind of sparkle comes down the 2,000 years. Uh, first of all, Jesus, who knows why, instead of just laying a hand on his shoulder, he makes some mud paste, rubs it in the guy's eyes. I always think, what would have happened if it hadn't worked? And, you know, you've got a poor blind guy, and the Son of God's come along and just rubbed mud in his eyes. But fortunately, it did work. And, uh, and then you've got this next encounter with the, the Pharisees getting their knickers in a twist of, well, is Jesus a sinner? Is this man a sinner? Where's the sin? Spot the sin. It's like, where's Wally? You know, and, 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 and then they... They sort of quiz his parents. His parents go, yeah, that's our boy. Yeah, he was born blind. We don't know what's happened, but you can definitely see, can't he? You know, three fingers, four fingers. So then they talk to the guy himself, and it's brilliant. He just says, one thing I know. One thing. I was blind, but now I can see. <laughs> and, and you know something about religion that doesn't like simplicity. Yes, but what about? Oh, it doesn't quite fit our boxes. He's going. Well, what do you want to be his disciples too? <laughs> and and then they they rebuke him and tell him who is he to be lecturing them. And then the third vignette, Jesus reappears to him, and then he says, you know, uh, do you, do you believe in the Son of Man? He goes, well. You know, you show me the Son of Man, I'll follow, I'll follow anyone right now. <laughs> I recognize your voice. And Jesus says, you have seen him. And he goes, I'm in. That man, born blind, didn't know very much. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't have clever answers to all uh, the questions. But he couldn't deny that he had been blind, and now he'd received his sight he couldn't deny his personal experience it was irrefutable evidence and in life, we so often, I think, go around thinking, well, if only I had experienced more, if only I knew more, then somehow I could be better at life and at being a Christian. But actually, we only need one thing. We only need one encounter with Jesus. We only need one word from him. We only need one answered prayer. That is the spark. I'm doing this post- partly just to keep Dave uh, happy. Dave slins a petrolhead. There you have a big jerry can full of petrol. I expect I'm breaking some health and safety regulation right now, and here we have some matches. And, and, and it's funny, isn't it, because even just this moment, there's a sort of frisson of, oh no, he has matches, and he has a jerry can, because we all know that one tiny little spark from the phosphorus on the end of one of these tiny little twigs here could start a fire that could burn the whole building down. It only takes one spark to burn down the whole forest. It only takes one thing, one testimony, one encounter, one experience, one revelation. I don't know the answer to all your questions. One thing I know, I was blind. Now I see. That was his story. Christian faith is not a dogma to be defended. It is an encounter to be experienced. Christian faith is not a dogma to be defended with clever arguments, it is an encounter with the living Jesus to be experienced. Pope Benedict, the former Pope, said that. He said, being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. The five people who were baptized last Sunday, they, they, they know, they've encountered Jesus, and they may not know everything, but they know something. I have experienced the living Jesus, and I'm going to follow him. Those doing Alpha, um, a whole bunch of people, Saturday before last, eight days ago, on the Holy Spirit day, experienced the reality of God. They moved from just talking about God to come, Holy Spirit, and he came. It was an encounter. Um, I, I, earlier this year, I read a book by a lady called Barbara Echenreich, uh, who is uh, known as a, as a fourth-generation atheist. Uh, she's um, a scientist. She's a darling of the liberal intelligentsia, and she released this memoir, and it's really upset everyone because it's called um, something like Dealings with a Wild God, and in it she talks about encountering God. (laughs) And they're all really upset because she's this sort of bastion of the atheist intelligentsia. And I thought, well, that'd be an interesting book to read. And uh, she describes this uh, encounter that she had with God uh, in Lone Pine, California, in May 1959, which she'd kept secret all these years. She says, on that empty street, I found whatever I had been looking for since the articulation of my quest to understand life's meaning, or perhaps, given my mental passivity at the moment, whatever had been looking for me. There is one image handed down over the centuries that seems to apply, and that's the image of fire as in the burning bush. At some point in my pre-dawn walk that day, not at the top of a hill or the exact moment of sunrise, but in its own good time, the world flamed into life how else to describe it there were no visions no prophetic voices or visits by totemic animals just this blazing everywhere something poured into me and i poured out into it this was not the passive beatific merger with the all as promised by the eastern mystics it was a furious encounter with Uh, A living substance that was coming at me through all things at once. And one reason for the terrible wordlessness of the experience is that you cannot observe fire really closely without being part of it. Beautiful. She's not using any religious language there, but trying to find words to express this extraordinary mystical experience of God. I wonder what the one thing is that God has done for you, the one spark that lights the fire of your faith. What experience, what encounter, what evidence you point towards when challenged. It may not be as dramatic as that blind man receiving his sight or Barbara Echenreich's uh, encounter with fire. But what one thing do you know that you know that you know about God? And that's enough. One thing. It may not be everything, but it's not nothing, it's something. What's the one thing? On, um, I think it's Wednesday. Uh, I was sitting next to Jill Weber, who leads a boiler room community in uh, Hamilton in greater Ontario in Canada. She received a text message. They'd had a a prayer team out on the streets the night before, and they'd got talking to these two teenage girls who were in a lesbian relationship, and the girls began to open up about just incredible pain, incredible damage that had been done to them by men, and um, then they, they offered to pray with them. And one of the girls said, well, my bike's been stolen. And it sounded like a simple thing, but this was her most valuable possession. And so the team just prayed with her and said, you know, Lord, please, this bike really matters. And within minutes, the bike was miraculously returned. And the, the girl said, I've gone from believing in God to 87% believing in God. (laughs) She'd had some kind of experience, only a bike, but for her it spoke of so much more. You may know that beautiful story that Tony Campolo, the American preacher, tells about a kid called Billy who went to an American summer camp. Um, And Billy had cerebral palsy. He found it hard to coordinate his movements, hard to walk, hard to talk. And the other boys on this camp um, began to be very cruel and imitate Billy's awkward walk and copy his clumsy speech and laugh at him. And the camp had been broken down into little dorm groups, and each day in the morning devotional, uh, a group would nominate somebody to lead the devotional that day. And when it was the turn for Billy's group, The boys in that group thought it would be funny to nominate Billy to do the devotional, knowing that he could hardly walk and hardly talk. And so the whole auditorium was sniggering as Billy stumbled onto the platform. And he got to the podium and you could see that he was holding it just to steady himself. And with every effort that he could make, he squeezed out these words. He said to those sniggering boys, Jesus loves me. And I love Jesus. And with that, this silence fell on the room. And Tony Campolo says boys who had been sniggering began weeping, and some fell to their knees, and a revival broke out in that camp. And he said he has lost count of the number of people he's met to this day who gave their life to Jesus or were called into full-time Christian ministry through the testimony of a boy called cerebral, with cerebral palsy called Billy. You see, you don't have to know very much You just need to know one thing. Billy knew Jesus loves me, and I love him. And we can talk about all the other stuff for as long as you want, but it won't shake the fact that I know Jesus, and Jesus knows me. One thing I know. And so Ben and Katie, getting married this afternoon, do they know how life is going to pan out? No but they feel like they've got enough to fuel them for the rest of their lives together. So often we hold back from giving ourselves in evangelism, thinking, if only I knew more than I could argue better. But maybe you know one thing. Or we hold back in worship thinking, if only I'd experienced more like the person next to me who seems to be lost in wonder, love and praise. But you only need to have experienced one thing to give thanks to God. Or we hold back in prayer thinking, I have so many unanswered prayers, but you only need one answered prayer to know that it works. What one thing has God said to you? What one thing has God done for you? 1 Peter says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We sometimes miss the reason bit. We just say, uh, "Be ready to explain what you believe," but it's not a creedal moment. I believe in God the Father. And, you know, this is a, what's the reason. Yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but what's the reason that you believe this stuff? What is your personal encounter? What is your experience of the living God? Revelation chapter 12 says, at the end of time, Satan will be destroyed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. There is something powerful about us knowing our story and telling our story to others, celebrating the story that God has given us. That's how we grow our faith, not by clenching our buttocks and trying to believe things that deep down we don't, but by looking around for the sparks of what God has already done and so celebrating them that we find faith for the things that God hasn't done yet, God, you may not have answered that big prayer, but you certainly answered that small one, so thank you for that. And if you can do that, then maybe you can do the other. By celebrating what God has done, that's how we find joy in worship. Not by coming and reflecting on all the dreadful things, but saying, God, I'm just grateful for what I have got. Some of the godliest people I've known have gone through incredible suffering. And I watch them in worship thinking, that's incredible. You're in pain right now. I know you're in pain. Your heart's broken right now. I know your heart's broken right now. You've got no money. I know you've got no money. And they're there worshiping. And you go up to them and they say, oh, Jesus is so faithful. And they'll often tell you just the littlest thing he's done for them. But they've learned that that one thing is enough for everything. It is the yeast that makes the whole loaf rise bill johnson uh, from uh, redding california often says if you only got one miracle story just tell that one story till you've got two and the trouble is we think well you know we told that one three and a half months ago so we can't tell it again the bible doesn't work like that imagine if once you'd read a miracle story in the new testament it disappeared Because God said, well, you've done done that one. We know you can keep going back to those stories and finding fresh revelation and fresh faith. So if you've only got one story, you tell that story until you've got two. Because faith comes through hearing. And so keep sharing the story of what God has done. I was blind, but now I see. I I, I find this so difficult because I tend to forget the things God's done. Anyone else here relate to that? It's just... I was at a thing recently and uh, 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 there was a, a guy with a TV camera who came up to me and a, a, a pretty lady with a microphone sort of thrust it in front of me and said, oh, P. Greg, yeah, 24-7 prayer, you're praying all over the world. Tell us some of the stuff that God's doing. Come on, give us some miracle stories. And I looked at this camera and my mind completely blanked. I couldn't think of a single answered prayer ever in my life. Nothing. I was absolutely convinced that moment God has never answered a single prayer I've ever prayed. And I just kind of like mouthed and and made some nonsense up. And I went away afterwards kicking myself and thought, why do I forget? I mean, right now, someone just came to Christ in Ibiza on the streets there. Um, Vice magazine has just done this amazing feature on our work there. Vice is like the most anarchic, uh, often, well, not the most sanitized of, uh, of internet forums, and they've done this whole brilliant, positive review on the work we're doing in Ibiza. Uh, we've just launched a new work in Magaluf, we've been praying non-stop for almost two and a half years at HTB. Prayer Space in schools is exploding in schools. People are coming to Christ here at Emmaus. We've launched our new website. We have a team right now in Lebanon working with Syrian refugees led by Jess Ford. There's plenty going on, but in that moment in front of the camera, I went, uh, I don't know what God's done. The Bible tells us 280 times, remember, 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 remember what God has done. Why? Because we are so forgetful. Psalm 107, verse 5, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Moses says, you must tell your children about the faithfulness of God. You must tell them the story of what I've done. Maybe you find it helpful to journal or keep notes on Evernote or some other uh, app. But, but find a way of recording what God has done, and you'll be amazed. Let's talk about the stories of faith with one another. I love sitting with people saying, how did you become a Christian? What's God doing in your life? Tell our kids. Let's create cultures that celebrate what God has done, as well as being honest about what he hasn't done yet. And so with Sammy, we long to see full and complete and total healing. But we are way further along than the doctors ever said that we would be. Like, by far, they had such bleak uh, prospects for us. And then when you go back and say, actually, you were wrong, it's far better than you thought, they go, well, we must be better than we realized. (laughs) It's so arrogant. So we celebrate what God has done and find faith what he hasn't done Yet. Rod, who was with us in the first service, you know, it's just such an encouragement to me. I think it was about a month ago some of you were here, and as I was speaking, I just felt this twinge in my neck on the, the back on the left, and a headache, uh, a little bit of a headache, and I thought, maybe this is God speaking to me. I said, is there someone here, you've got a twinge in your neck on the left-hand side and a little bit of a headache, and suddenly, just sitting there, his hand goes up, and it was only a second time ever at Emmaus. And he said to me the next day, I wouldn't have put my hand up if you said the right side, but you said the left side. It was exactly right, so I put my hand up. Some of you prayed for him. He felt heat. He was completely instantly healed. He went to the physio the next day. The physio, who had said, you're going to have to come for a whole series of, of, of uh, um, treatments, uh, ongoing treatments, just said, there's no point in coming back. You're clearly better. He said he slept so well uh, that night because he was pain-free for the first time in weeks and weeks and weeks. He was late for work the next day. And uh, I saw him about an hour and a half ago, and he said, I'm, I've been completely healed. It's not come back. It just was instantly cured in that manner. That's so encouraging. Does that mean that most of the prayers I pray for healing happen? Sadly not. But I can't deny the sparks of what God's doing, and that's what I'm going to use to light the fire of faith and break through in other areas of my life. You know, there are two occasions as we draw this together. There are two occasions where the people of Israel found themselves on the boundary, on the border, about to step into the promised land. You know, the, the, the land flowing with milk and honey they have been dreaming of, that God had promised them. But on the first occasion, there they are, on the boundary and most of the spies that have been sent out to check the land out come back and they tell a story that is terrifying. They tell a story of fortified cities and of giants and of difficulty and of armies that are unbeatable. And the people of Israel absorb those negative stories and they stay on the the border of the promised land. They do not go in. The next time they come back to the boundary line, Moses takes control of the situation and he tells a different story. He tells the people of Israel of God's miraculous intervention and provision and faithfulness in their lives down the years. And they believe that story and find faith to go in and fight the armies in the promised land. I wonder what borders you are standing on the edge of right now. And I wonder what stories you are going to tell yourself and your friends and your children. Are they the stories of all the impossibilities or are they the stories of God's faithfulness? I know it's been hard. I know there have been problems. I know there have been difficulties. Of course they have. We're alive. Life is tough. But let's remember the faithfulness of God. Let's celebrate the sparks of God's faithfulness. Let's stand with that blind man saying, one thing I know, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of things in this life I don't understand, but one thing I know, God has done this for me. God has shown this to me. Aaron Morganson, the um, author of The Night Circus, says, you may tell a tale that takes up residence in someone's soul that becomes their blood and self and purpose. That tale will move them and drive them, and who knows what they might do because of it, because of your words. That is your role, your gift, to tell that story. Let's be people who tell the stories of faith to the body of Christ, to those who don't know Christ. Let's be hope bringers, spark lifters in This world? What God's stories will we tell today? What sparks will we light? What is the one thing that God has done for you, said to you, shown you, or provided for you?